Welcome to the About Sex Podcast, where we discuss... Weather patterns. Weather? Well, yeah, some clouds and stuff. Anyway, <laughs> my name is Josh, and with me as always is my lovely wife, Angela Skirtu. Tell us who you are, Angela. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and an ASEC certified sex therapist. And today, our guest is Shirley Mellis, and she is the author of a memoir, Banged Up Heart, Dancing with Love and Loss. Hello, Shirley. Hello. Hello. Angela and Josh. Hello. It's Thanks good for to joining have you us. With us. So tell us a little about yourself. Well, um, I'll tell I'll start out by saying I live in New Mexico, about in a, about thirty minutes outside of Santa Fe in a little Spanish village of uh, some two hundred fifty. Or as I mentioned earlier, two hundred fifty one. Someone just had a baby. You gotta <laughs> count every number <laughs> with that low of numbers. <laughs> You're like, We got one more. We got one. Don't let go of her. <laughs> so, I mean, I I grew up in Northern California, but I spent a lot of time on the east coast in the Washington D C area. Cool. And uh, I was a business a business writer and a travel writer for a long time and and uh, actually planned to write a book when I retired, a book about women between the ages of 60 and 90 who've lived life and, and feel good about themselves and in sort of aware of a lot of, aware of themselves. But um, I would say life interfered and I, uh, well, that's still on a, it's on a back burner, but I, I had to write this memoir and uh, yeah, it, let's get it, into the it memoir. It overnight. It was like uh, yeah. three years writing the first draft, and then hmm. Did you say three years? years? Wow. Rewriting. Yeah, I wondered what the process was like, because, I mean, this is a pretty, like, tough story. Mm. It's your history. Like, what was that experience like, writing your memoir? Well, it was, I was, I, I was pretty compelled. I, uh, it was intense. I had, um. Uh, I had sources. I, I I wasn't an English major. I was a history major in college. My original sources were a lot of emails and a fairly detailed journal, um, and in, in it sort of covers a two and a half year time period during which a lot of drama occurred. Mm-hmm. And uh, yet, when I finished the first draft, and I should say, I'm. <laughs> I was advised, I have a wonderful goddaughter who writes for middle school age children, but she read the first 60 pages and she said, Shirley, she said, you've got to keep going. You've got other, you know, people will be interested in this. She said, but you've got to write about Joe, my first husband. And she was crazy about him and, and I was too. But I, so I wrote about Joe. Then I decided to read, oh, I thought I might as well write about my Greek lover and my troubled mother. <laughs> I mean, my manuscript just kept growing. <laughs> So at some point, and after three years, I met with an editor and I said, please, if you can take this and tell me what's missing. I know something's missing, despite the length. So <laughs> two, weeks, two weeks later, she calls me and she says, I know exactly what's missing. Well, she didn't tell me what. So we met again at <laughs> the tea house in Santa Fe. And she says, well, she says, for starters, she says, you have three books in one. Oh. <laughs> I made a note of how many pages you have in each, and she says, I think you should go with the one with the most pages because that's where your energy is. Mm-hmm. So that was that was John. I didn't shred everything else, but I actually sort of layered it into my story about John. Yeah. I mean, it's in there, in, in reflections or... 
uh, it it sort of seeps in. So is John but, um, is John the main focus of the the memoir? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it sort of um, yeah, it starts with uh, starts with my meeting him, and then it it ends two and a half years later. Mm-hmm. So. Um, the, the rewriting, I mean, what I found is that I had written what I now call the visible story. And what I needed to do was write the inside story. And not being just easily introspective, uh, I found that the questions my editor asked me really led me to inside so that I could... Could, could express feelings and uh, and then think of, you know, and then have insights about what was going on during this time. The, um, I'm, kind uh, of, I'm kind of curious, um, Shirley. So one of the, one of the things that happened in the story is that before you met John, you had a very weird date. Would you like to share a little bit about that weird date? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I should, in context, I, I've been, um, it was about two years after Joe died, uh, that I walked into my office and the receptionist steps out from, I was coming in after lunch, she steps out from behind the counter and she said, Shirley, she said, she was not a subtle person, she said, what kind of a, do you have a social life? (laughs) (laughs) It's a unique question. Well, not, not not exactly. And I, mm. I put them, I just tucked them in little boxes in the back of a drawer. Mm. And then I felt totally naked. <laughs> I'm sending a message I don't even believe in myself. <laughs> I stepped out. <laughs> you decided to get yourself out there. Well, I, I bet that happens for a lot of people that when somebody you love, I mean, you were with Joe for a really long time, he passes away and you almost just feel kind of like, what do Shell-shocked. I do now? Shell-shocked. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was, well, and then not long after that, a family friend, the wife of a family friend in North Carolina died. And I, I would, I was living in Reston, Virginia. I went to the memorial service and I knew I was going to be in that area for Christmas because old friends had, they had invited me for Christmas ever since Joe died and, uh, well, for two years. So, and they, they lived in Raleigh. So I told Paul, I said, you know, I'm going to be back here around the Christmas holidays. And he said, well, we should arrange, you know, be sure to have dinner together. Well, so this, in my mind, became, I said, oh, my gosh, it's sort of going to be my first official date after <laughs> Joe's death. And I was anticipating this. I thought, you know, he would, he, he was a college professor and, and he done a, he was a businessman. He'd done a lot of consulting. I didn't actually had not spent that much time with, I didn't spend any time with him alone. I'd actually spent most of it with his wife and Joe. Um, so, um, so I, I arrived in, in, in Raleigh and, and I'm, uh, the night for dinner with Paul, uh, 
arrives. I mean, this is the day the day after Christmas, I guess. And uh, he'd been talking about how after his wife died, his children hired a chef so he wouldn't have to cook and blah, blah, blah. And he said, oh, my gosh, you know, there's so much great food. Uh, we have, uh, I, I have dinner parties every week. And, and so... He said, it's suggested, he said, why don't you come for dinner and we'll have one of our, the chef's dinners. I said, well, okay, all right. So we get, I'm just going to get in and I'm going to just read a bit, but we, we, he picks me up in Raleigh and we drive to uh, his place in Chapel Hill and, um, and, uh, and okay, here's the, the cook couldn't come yesterday because of the holiday. So we're eating what she made last week. Now. So he fed her leftovers, essentially, for dishes, a date. Dishes of a delicious gourmet dinner suddenly gave way to images of stale, dried-out food, tasteless and worse. <laughs> it's like, he's not good at first impressions, is he? <laughs> the lemon wedge is flabby. Why hadn't he suggested going out for dinner? As soon as we'd gotten through the shrimp, Paul stood up and cleared the empty glass bowls from the table. A buzzer sounded and he reappeared with Tupperware containers filled with steaming side dishes that he placed on the table. A buzzer went off again as he made another trip to the microwave, returning with a plate <laughs> that had a single thick filet of beef in the center, which he placed in front of me. After he returned with the steak for himself, I easily cut into the tender filet and closed my mouth on a piece that was absolutely chilled. <laughs> I'm sorry, Paul, but my filet is cold. Oh. I can fix that. He jumped up from the table. I'll just put it back in the microwave. So, in any case, you know, things proceed, and um, at some point... Uh, <laughs> microwave well. steak. It's so romantic. Well, surely, oh, go ahead. Well, surely, Nagelschmidt, uh, that being my married name, uh, why did you want to have dinner with me? Mm. Taken aback by the question, I sat back in my chair and thought for a few seconds. The possibility of a romantic relationship had crossed my mind. Paul grinned, his thin lips stretching wide. I'd like to fly up to see you again on Valentine's Day. Oh, that might be nice. On the other hand, I thought, it might not be. <laughs> Coupled with his apparent assumption that a microwave week old dinner in the kitchen was an appropriate dinner date, wasn't computing as Valentine worthy. Uh, suddenly he kissed me hard on the lips, on the mouth, his lips closed. And then, then we, then we go on and, um, there are some more, uh, eventually, um, he's taking me home. I mean, back to Raleigh. It was pitch black, a moonless, starless night. He had just driven onto the highway heading to Raleigh when he announced, I can't get an erection because of the prostate surgery I had. <laughs> then went on to describe it in some detail. Joe had told me about the cancer. It was serious, and we'd been concerned about Paul's survival. His erectile function, or lack thereof, had never crossed my mind, at least not until now. His voice rose. It's been 17 years since I've been inside a woman. Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. I, I He's blunt. He's <laughs> very to the point. where this <laughs> clinical confession was going, but I'm taking treatments to correct the condition and... I'm doing this just for you. <laughs> just for you. I can you. feel my jaw drop. For me? <laughs> Why me? Why we just not for, for Sharon, who'd had vested interest in the relationship? As if nearing the 
finish line of a race, he went on. Mm. Rest assured, I have no trouble finding the G-spot. I really <laughs> didn't want to hear this, any of it. Not on a first date, maybe never. <laughs> maybe Nonetheless, <laughs> my curiosity was piqued. What are the treatments, I asked, <laughs> thankful for the cover of darkness. That, that's... that's I'll end that. No, that's <laughs> that's a great ending spot. And who does that on a first date? That's so strange. I don't know. <laughs> um, well, and you know, some people are so sort of clueless about others. I, I mean, he he was entirely just. I, I guess insensitive covers it. It covers it. I, I just. I would he, think he was, like maybe unaware, <laughs> oblivious, oblivious. Yeah, you know, oblivious. not that he's like because he seems like a nice guy and all. You know, either just, just ob- didn't know what to do. Oblivious to social norms, or <laughs> or he's. It sounds maybe he was a little nervous about it. I'm sure he's insecure about the ED yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's hard too because so if you're dealing with ED, I know a lot of the men that I work with who have EDD, ED, sorry, no, EDD, <laughs> ED really just worry, you know, they worry if, if you'll like them after that. So yeah. I guess he's just like putting I'm it out there up sure. front. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure he was really nervous, but um, um, I, I just was really uh, disgusted. I mean, I was just, 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 just I, I, I mean, it was like, he said, you know, I've met a lot of women, uh, did he really? Yeah, I've met a lot of women since Sharon died or whatever. And, 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 you know, and he just, but none of them, you know, he said, none of them appealed to me. And I, I, I said, you know, in my head, I said, oh my God, he's English. It's not right. None of them appeals to me. It's what he should be. So I'm just <laughs> mentally correcting his English oh, and, and he's going on and then, he, and then he's. Match made in heaven. And then he went. He wants me to go on some cruise with him. And, and on I the first day. I'm working. You know, I'm oh. working. I got <laughs> stuff to do. I just stop working, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I, I had found it. I found a relative in the Czech Republic, a young fellow. And I, I'd arranged to, for him. He was going to Charles University, or he got accepted to Charles University. And I arranged for um, an internship for him in the summer at the airport's authority where I was working. And I tell Paul, Paul, I, you know, I, I want to be there for, for his name is a lash. I said, and, and he says sort of, well, does he need protection? <laughs> I said, he's never been to the States before. I mean, this guy, mm. anyway, it was just, it was, um, we were definitely, not on the same track. Yeah, definitely not a match. So tell so, us a little bit. Oh, you want to ask the next yeah, question, tell us, Josh? Let's let's talk a little bit about John. Uh, that was your second husband. Uh, what made John so special for you? When when did you meet him? Well, I you know in in part it was probably because of the experience with Paul. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, after I, I met I met John when that when I was there in Raleigh for my date with Paul. It turns out the last minute, uh, my friends, uh, my Dick and Carrie, Dick's brother was John. John, at the last minute, flew to Raleigh to have Christmas with his brother and his wife. And they were my friends with whom I was staying. And um, so, you know, I didn't 
I'd, I'd heard of him, but I didn't, you know, didn't, I'd never met him before. So Christmas morning, and this is, you know, I'm still anticipating my date with Paul. Um, everyone's getting ready. They're going to have a big dinner that night for 25, and it's all under control, and I'm just, I'm sort of an exercise buff, and I just asked John if he'd want to go for a walk. Everyone else was busy. would walk through the neighborhood, sure, he says, so... So we take this walk, and we just we're just talking, and it it was during. I mean, it was a very easy conversation, um, mm. and so that's that's when I met. I thought we you know we got back. I thought well you know we could be friends. I mean, he was he was nice. It was um, a good connection right away. Sounds like yeah, <laughs> but it wasn't any sort of like oh God, he's the one. No, I'm still thinking about Paul. <laughs> <laughs> beginning of the book kind of goes through how you guys got connected and start to develop that romance. And then one thing you mentioned in the book, actually, is that like, you know, at some point, I think you knew that he had cancer, but you didn't really, you thought it was in remission. And why don't you tell me a little bit about that? On that that walk, he told me that at age 40, he'd been diagnosed with a rare cancer called Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. It's a blood cancer. Mm. And that he... Uh, controlled it uh, through periodic infusions of rituxan, which is something like chemo, but different. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and told me that there was a backup treatment in the wings. And honestly, he was so positive about his health that I I did not focus. I did not. I pummeled him with questions after we became sort of seriously in, involved with each other. 
I pummeled him with questions, but not about his health. Mm-hmm. I Interesting. Do that, and I was more interested in in <laughs> his character and our differences because he was an honest to goodness rocket scientist, <laughs> and I'd nearly been done in by algebra. You know, <laughs> <laughs> my, my high school principal, who tutored me, used to call me Euclid Mellis. You know, and, and I, I, just, I said, but when I pointed out. Our differences, John said, he just laughed. He says, well, I can't imagine being romantically involved with a scientist. He says, just consider the the math and science is something odd I do in my work. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they do say opposites attract. (laughs) So, so so we went from there. um, Well, and so then what happened then when the, you know, so the cancer started to progress. So you guys, your romance kind of budded very quickly. And then... we, you know, we just started before that. Um, we crammed in a lot, a lot of travel, an African safari, a trip to to um, to France, to Brittany, France, and uh, it was like it was the summer, two summers. Well, after we'd been married, I think it was the second, I should have this on, the second summer, we it, we left Santa Fe on a 5,000-mile road trip to the Pacific Northwest to sort of share our childhoods with each other. And we get to uh, the uh, Olympic Peninsula, and we check into a place, uh, a, a lodge in a place called Forks. And this was so that John could check out. I mean, he's a, he, he gave up, he took early retirement to do landscape photography. Mm-hmm. So wherever he goes, he has his cameras. And we he wanted to go to this place so he could check out the nearby dramatic beaches with his camera. So this lodge is in, nestled in the woods, and it's rustic. I mean, the, our headboard was carved to look like antlers. <laughs> and, you know, the next morning, I, I'm uh, caressing, we're in bed, I'm caressing his face, and, you know, I there's this bump on his forehead under his hairline. And oh. I said, God, I said, what is this? And he says, what are you talking about? And I said, there's a lump the size of a quail leg and right under your hair. And he says, well, he said, I think I remember hitting my head after I, I was changing the cords on the computers under the desk in the condo in Santa Fe. And uh, I said, you know, that must have been quite a hit. I mean, it wasn't black and blue. But that, yeah. It, so that was that. explanation sounded plausible. So did that uh, end up being a tumor later? So, yeah, several weeks later, uh, he completed uh, MRIs of the brain and his his spine and we left on another long scheduled trip to Santa Fe and we just arrived that Friday morning uh, and we were at the airport and his phone rings and it's his oncologist mm. and he, he, he'd finished the MRI at like midnight the night before telling him to come back immediately I see so and, there, that was when everything was about to hit the fan <laughs> Yeah, so that was, and and that's when, um, yeah, he he said, uh, well, he, he wanted to. He said he would talk it over with Shirley. So uh, when he he told me, he'd written down that there had, you know there were tumors in the brain. I mean, 
very there and in the spine. And uh, he said, but we can't go back. Right. He wanted to extend the trip, and he extended it. He made our return flights three days later and on a Monday. So it was on a Sunday that um, he he woke up uh, and started to to talk, and he couldn't he couldn't complete a sentence. Mm. And mm. it uh, progressed from there. Became very uh, what well, was it was harrowing to get. I knew we had to get back. I, I thought the cancer was out of control, sort of pressing on mm-hmm. his motor. Well, because in the book you mentioned he was kind of like sort of there, but like almost passing out, like he couldn't use his limbs at a certain point, right? Like when he had to be... He, he was sort of, he was quite, he was unstable on his legs. I mean, he was unstable. And uh, so um, we, uh, we, yeah, we did, we did uh, get back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a difficult time to get back, but you did. And so, you know, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, um, you know, like, what do you think is the hardest part about going through that? Like, you know, you guys went through a lot of treatment, and he did eventually pass. So what is the toughest part about going through treatments like that with uh, somebody you love? What do you think? Well, it was hard for me to uh, to give up hope. It was very hard. I... I kept because it turned out that it wasn't the cancer that was causing his lack of stability and inability to articulate. It was a rampant infection, oh, yeah. and uh, that uh, that was that was terrifying for me because he he nearly died that night, and the uh, infectious doctor they talked to me and they said, you know, he should have been treated in Santa Fe, should have been treated in Dallas. And I, it was on me. I just felt that it was my fault, you know, and fortunately, I mean, I really was fortunate in many ways, not just for, that he did not die that night. And in fact, he, he lived another nine months and mm-hmm. it was during that time that we sort of both actually think, thought he could beat it. I mean, the infection was dealt with, and then the cancer took the focus. And at some point, he um, he dis- he opted against the last possible treatment, and he uh, and and registered for hospice. And I I thought, and I heard him. I mean, he he told the nurse, the hospice nurse, he said. I'm doing this because I want it to be our last best time together. Mm-hmm. And you know, if and he and then he said he could envision how weak he would be after another round of chemo and susceptible to yet another infection. And you know, if, and I knew if he were hospitalized again, he would never get out. I just that was my take. Uh, and apparently he agreed with that. And so, um, but even, you know, so when I still remember when the oncologist said as we left and his office, when he said that, I said, should we call hospice? He said, I'll call hospice and you'll hear from them in the next couple of days. And then he said, you know, he said, 
it's not a science. He said, I've been wrong. Before the last time I, I ordered hospice for someone, they lived another year or more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, in the back of my mind was a hope that he would uh, persist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was more he was more accepting, but uh, we had we had a good. That was the best part is we did have the last best time was really quite good. Because so, oh, go on, go on, ask. So at, at one point you speak in the book about assisted suicide and double suicide. Um, so how did that conversation go? When did that come up? Well, that was that was you know, right after the um, the on, oncologist. This is actually just before he did the hospice. We met with the oncologist, and he told John, he said, there's one more treatment. And John said, I'm not going to opt for that. And the oncologist, as though he hadn't heard him, said, I want you to take the weekend to think about it. And then call me Monday. Or come in and see me Monday. So that was, it was, that was a Friday, and on Sunday morning, uh, uh, we're sitting across from John is, uh, he's, he's got the paper on his lap and he hasn't picked it up and he's looking very straight. I look at him and he's, and I he said, what are you? He said, I've gotten you into something that I can't get out of and there's nothing I can do. And he said, I have the darkest thoughts and there is nothing to do. And it just, and so, at some point, I, I didn't have the, I, I couldn't face what he couldn't tell me. And I said, do you want to speak to my therapist? I had a therapist. And he said, all right. Well, I called her, and she suggested her partner. So, Monday morning, uh, John and I went to see the, her partner. And I'm waiting for him. In, in the waiting room, and maybe it was maybe an hour, he comes out, and, and, I, and I ask him, I said, so, how is this? How, how was it? And he said, well, I think I depressed him more than anything else. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> so so I, he said, I'm telling him things I can't tell anyone else. Yeah. And I thought, oh, my God, that means he can't tell me. So then I'm feeling that, you know, he has this thing, he can't tell me. And he's not one to sort of initiate stuff. I had sort of always, you have to ask the right question, and then he'll speak. We get home, and, and I just said to him, I said, are you thinking about suicide? He said, yes. Okay. He said, in fact, he said, I'm thinking about double suicide. <laughs> said, oh, my God. Well, yeah, what was I, that like for you? Like, you know, I just was. I was sort of taken aback by that. I mean, I thought, I don't, uh, my first husband, Joe, was someone who really, uh, he, he, he thought about a lot of things. He had a, a lot of uh, books on suicide, uh, Derry Humphreys, and uh, he said, you know, he, he never wanted to be incapacitated, so he had sort of read up on how you could do these things. Mm-hmm. So I had books in my library and I, I just pulled them out. 
And we started reading different passages to each other and actually how-to passages. And finally, uh, John says, you know, he said, we can't do it. And I said, why not? And uh, he said, because we would need a third person. Mm-hmm. And he said, you, you can't be sure of any of this unless there's a third person. Mm-hmm. And so it was during that that I realized that I wasn't, I wasn't ready to die. I mean, I did not, I wanted to live. And, but I felt that if John, we knew he was going to die. And if I could help him in that way, I would. Mm. So I said, you know, what about Oregon? You know, whether they have assisted suicide. And, and he said, well, he said, I don't have the strength to get there. And, um, well, so, so that's just such that a hard thing to talk went. about. Yeah. Like, I mean, I couldn't imagine, but it's interesting that you already had the books. That's why it seems so casual in the book. Like you just kind of you're like, all right, let's read about this. And yeah. I just don't know if everybody would approach it that way. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, you know, he was a, he, he was a scientist. He was very matter of fact. Was that a calm conversation? Was that a matter of fact? Like, okay, let's look it, up suicide. It, it was, or were you crying? It really, was it emotional? It was. It was calm. I think I was stifling a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I kept saying, you know, I've got to read this. I've got to understand it, and I've got oh, to wow. understand how I feel about it. Mm-hmm. And and I finally, through it all, realized. It w- there was not going to be a double suicide. Yeah, mm-hmm. I wasn't. I wasn't going to be party to that. I I wanted to live. Well, spoiler and alert: you're still alive. Yeah, <laughs> I'm totally joking. Totally so, <laughs> 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 yep. It didn't end. It. It, she didn't end. Here we say, in spite of the double suicide, here is Shirley. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, it just seems like such a tough conversation. Yeah. So, what kind of? Um, um, I do want to ask you one thing. Like, if somebody were ever going through this like either a long-term terminal illness like this, or if somebody were struggling with, um, you know, considering that, like a suicide or an assisted suicide, what advice would you give to people to consider, you know, like to work through something like this? You, you want to focus just on the suicide part? or the... More the terminal illness, but yeah, I mean, I think terminal, that's a part of it. Terminal more illness. terminal illness. Yeah. It's... Um, no advice on suicide. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, right. It's Don't so, kill yourself. It's so yeah. consuming. It, it, I, it's it's very consuming while you're going through it. I I mean, I had a friend who said you've got to get someone to help you. I said I don't know what kind of help I could use. So finally, I thought, well, you know, maybe someone could prepare the meals. But John was actually in pretty. He was pretty good. I mean, he started driving while you know during this this last period he was he was driving and and he even went to the, he went to an eye an optical place and he came back he said i just got new glasses you know mm-hmm. so he's perfectly healthy and just needed new glasses <laughs> and he said i can see better than i you know i have in a long time and <laughs> and, and i i thought well he could maybe he is going to be all right you know these things sort of kept happening they give you a little um, hope along the way yeah. yeah. So, so that sort of, you know, kept giving me. I, I grabbed onto those glimmers of hope, mm. uh, or sign. What I could thought maybe were signs. The um, 
but um, so I had a routine. I mean, I tried to, I would go to, we had both, we, at one point we both went to the health club and did yoga together and all that, but I kept doing that and when John did not. And I did hire someone to come in and fix like a, a meal, a noonday meal that then I could heat up for, uh, she would fix lunch for John and then fix some something for dinner and I could heat it up for dinner. But I had to do this. John was very much a, a sort of a into gourmet cooking. <laughs> he wanted, he had recipes that he wanted prepared. And, and it was really funny because this person who was doing it might, might have had a little dyslexia. But in any case, she, 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 would, <laughs> she, she would ask him about some ingredient that, that, wasn't in the recipe uh. <laughs> or, or she said well she said do you have any white wine he said yes but i think it, you want red wine for this lamb ragu or whatever yeah. <laughs> oh, oh okay but any case well so it sounds so, like still better uh, than microwave steaks though I mean, yeah <laughs> well and the thing is you know he, he hated to eat the same thing twice oh yeah and, and she so I had all these recipe casserole recipes that were. He, I, he said, "You know," he said, "I'm feeling so much better." He says, "I'll do, I'll do the cooking." Mm-hmm. He says, "It's not worth it to have these casseroles," you know. And I, said, well, <laughs> I said, "Let me, let me think about that." So I went downstairs. We were in a condo. I went down and got on the treadmill, and I'm thinking about it. I go upstairs. I said, "We're doing this for me." Not for you. And I said, you're the patient. And I said, and I can't, I'm not going to cook. <laughs> and I don't really like casseroles either. They're so fatty. Yeah, nobody does. <laughs> we just tolerate them. <laughs> no, it's something you eat. It's easy to cook and you throw together for a whole mm-hmm. big family. You're good. Yeah. But it sounds like one of the things that helped you too was just kind of sticking to your routine, still taking care of yourself and like, right, you know, enjoying Andy. each you're moment. Right. Yeah, you know. You're, you're right. And it, it really did help. And then there and there were friends who who uh, who who were there. Who as long as we could, we went to their place for dinner once in a while. And she fixed, you know, she knew he liked pecan pie, so she had one. And then she gave him one to take home, and all of this. And um, and at that point, his, his appetite never never waned it was like he enjoyed well but he stopped drinking he used to like he, he liked single malt scotch and he, he was crazy about wine but he said i just can't drink it because it it goes he says it just messes up my brain he said i hmm. oh. he, he was so he he but i kept drinking <laughs> as one does i could see that as a self-care tactic too <laughs> here yeah. and there yeah well i mean that's what i think you would need to do is hang on to some sense of normalcy while you're in the chaos essentially yeah yeah i so it was um i don't know if i'd answered your question josh no, you... about what was the hardest um it, it, the one of the hardest times for me was was hearing the outcome of an MRI mm-hmm. that detailed it was read by the oncologist was away it was his nurse who was reading this and it was to me quite I mean it reveal it was revealing of how serious uh, this all 
his condition was. And mm-hmm. uh, that was before that was before the infection. And I mean, it, it, it just um, yeah, it was just before the infection. Yeah, it was after the bump had been discovered. But so, uh, tell us a little bit about the the variant when he passed. Uh, how did how did that come about? Was he in hospice? About the what? When he passed away, was he in was he in hospice at that point? Yeah, he was. So he was in hospice about um, about four months. It and um, he had said to me that he didn't want to be institutionalized, and I said, well. Um, the hospice person, the hospice triage person, or whatever, came to the condo where John. He talked about what hospice is, and he left manuals. You know, John registered for it and all. And he said, "Give me the papers. I'm ready. I'm signing up right now." And finally, I I decided I better read the manual. And as I'm reading this, I'm saying, "Oh my gosh!" I said, "John, if you if you get to be this bad, I said I won't be able to take care of you." And he said, "Well, uh, I said, but I'll hire people." I, he said, "Well, I don't want to be institutionalized." I said, "That don't worry. I'll hire people to help me." So, so. And then the nurse and the social work, the nurse visited every week uh, until John asked her to please not visit every week. He said, I, he says, well, then I'll call you on the phone. Okay. Um, and the social worker was more intermittent. But um, so there was one point when uh, I, John just, he, he fell and I couldn't get him up. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then from, that was maybe, a, that covered a, a, a couple of days before the weekend and then the weekend and the hospice nurse is on duty is coming in to, to help me. And, and she said, uh, I said, uh, you know, I've got to hire someone to help John get from his easy chair to the bathroom. And so, she says, oh, she says, he, he's got to be in bed. You know, he can't be in a chair. He's got to be in bed. And I said, well, then I need a hospital bed. She says, well, the warehouse is closed now. You know, we can't get you a hospital bed. And so Monday, I said, well, can, can you look at this list of hospice nurses that I, I could call? See, do you recognize any names on this in the manual? She says, well, it's, it's been a long time since I... Was she didn't recognize any of the names, so I just I just started calling because I felt I needed to get some coverage and help, and I I innocently I sort of thought well you know all I need is three people eight hour shifts that's twenty four hours, well then I started calling and found out oh someone works just on Tuesdays and Thursdays and they work for five hours at a time you know it just became a big mosaic of how yeah. to get the coverage oh, wow. and. So the morning, Monday morning, when uh, the first uh, nurse showed up, uh, caregiver, uh, um, the I said, just you know, help John uh, drink some orange juice, and, and you know, we had this little sort of tiny wheelchair that I had rented, uh, and she 
we got him into that and she was the phone rang and so it's the it's the hospice person she said i'm the director of such and such and we've got a bed for you i said well thank goodness when will it be delivered and she's no no she said i don't mean a bed to be delivered i mean we've got an inpatient bed for john mm-hmm. in this in our hospice in arlington virginia and I said, oh, well, she said, I've called John's nurse and the social worker, and I hope they get there before the transport people get there. Hmm. So I hung up the phone. I went in to see the caregiver, and I pulled her away from John, and I told her what was happening. And I said, she said, and then I said, you, I've got to go talk with John. So by this time, John was back in bed. And... I told it because it hit me that this smacked of institutionalization, and I told him, you know, this is what we're being offered. I felt relief. I thought, oh my God, he's going to go someplace where they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And but then I realized that that was, you know, I so I asked John what he thought, and he said, it's okay, it's okay. Oh, so wow. he knew you needed the help. Uh, so he did, and he did end up passing away in the hospice, right? Yeah, he ended. He passed away and. Room number two of the hospice in Arlington, Virginia, mm-hmm. uh, about, I, I guess, about a week, a week later, maybe, about that. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Well, would you like so to... it was a different, it was very, it was different from the death of my first husband was sudden, and, and a year after that, I thought I was doing all right, and... To, until I went to have my annual physical, and you know, doctors say, "Well, how are you doing?" And I, I and I started, I just blurted out, "My husband died." You know, what's happened yeah. to you this last year? My mm-hmm. husband died, and I just started sobbing. And two of them said, "Well, are you seeing a therapist?" And I said, "No." And so, a year after Joe died, I, I joined a grief group. It was a hospice grief group, and 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 found a wonderful therapist. And I guess my. I, I felt, uh, I'm just going to say this now, I think that grief is, is a very, it's, it's so, it's such a heavy thing for a number of people, and I think it's, it's hard for close friends to, to deal with uh, my grief, and I, I felt the therapist was so helpful to me, because I think it's, your friends don't know what to say or do, and, mm-hmm. and most of my friends had never dealt with anyone uh, you know, beloved person died. That's definitely and, something I've noticed, you know, as a therapist that like a lot of my clients struggle, you know, when you're dealing with this huge grief, what do you do? Who do you, you know, like people will say, I'm here for you if you need me, but nobody knows what to do to actually offer yeah, the you need. Don't, you don't know what to ask for. Yeah. yeah. So the best thing, yeah, and you don't, the best thing somebody can do I, yeah, if so they have was, someone. It was wonderful to have, to have that, that therapist. So I was seeing the therapist all you know when i met john i mean i was involved with a therapist so you know and um it's it was it was very helpful to me i think people should allow themselves to grieve and i it i was working after the death of my first husband and i thought it was a good thing to be able to go back to work in a structure where i could focus had to focus on other people not myself not my grief and I think that was good, but I think that's why I never really st- 
started grieving until a year later. <laughs> yeah. Well, Shirley, we're um, about out of time on the podcast. Josh, was there any one last thing you wanted to say about that? Or? No, I think that's it for today. Uh, so this has been Shirley Mellis, and she's the author of the book Banged Up Heart, a memoir, Dancing with Love and Loss. Yeah, thank you so thank much you for so joining much us, for joining us. Uh, is there anything else you want to say to, your, to our would, listeners? I would just say if anyone is interested in the memoir, it's available at in, through independent bookstores, it's on Amazon. It's uh, it's also available as an ebook, and it's it's winning awards, which is awesome. nothing I anticipated. But congratulations! I, I'm very pleased. <laughs> <laughs> well, good for you. And of course, I always put in a plug for my stuff. So uh, thank, if you need therapy, thank you. Oh, okay. Thank you for for thank you for having me on your program. Sure. Of course, of course. So um, if anybody wants to come in to see me, it's uh, www.therapistinstlouis.com. And I'm also author of the book, uh, Helping Couples Overcome Infidelity, A Therapist's Manual, also available on Amazon. Um, so be sure to add us on Facebook, review us on iTunes, and send us your questions to aboutsexpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Joshua Skirtu. And I'm Angela Skirtu. Stay, Stay kinky, kinky, St. Louis. Louis.